Xavier, I'd be rich if I had a dollar every time I heard someone say, man, I wish I knew 20 years ago what I know today about money. They need to be teaching about this stuff in school. Like the power of investing early. Compound interest. That alone would impact lives. Understanding and planning for taxes. Understanding the difference between both good debt and bad debt. Eric, what about all the stuff about money that business owners need to know? What kind of insurance should you be buying? The importance of contributing towards your retirement. They don't teach any of this stuff in school. Y'all sit back, get ready, because we are talking stuff about money they didn't teach you in school that you need to know. Welcome back to the Stuff About Money They Didn't Teach You in School podcast. I am Eric Garcia, Certified Financial Planner, your host for today. And I um, have a guest on, John Hupalo. John is from my college corner. He's a, he's kind of been in the, the college planning space for a while. We were, were joking before we hit record, John, we just need a standing meeting for us to podcast. You, I think you are going to be maybe the most regular guest on my podcast. Wow. Um, well, well, thanks, Eric. Yeah, I love talking to you. And this is a topic uh, that this is an area where there's no shortage of things to talk about. So whenever you want to chat, I'm more than happy to. It's always great fun. And I hope your listeners and those who are listening to the podcast get a lot out of this. You know, it, it's really yeah. important to me that we try to get the word out as best we can. And I just love the form that you have. So let's go do it. My youngest is in uh, fifth grade, so that means that I have at least probably another eleven years of recording with you until she's <laughs> out of college. So this this is a purely selfish, purely selfish show. But l- let me actually do a better job of introducing you. You've been in the college planning space for twenty plus years, and correct me if I'm wrong. Your co-founder at my college corner was one of the like the pioneers in the five twenty nine space. Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I was an expert in private credit student loans, kind of grew up in that area. I was a, actually the chief financial officer of a publicly traded student loan company that didn't do so well during the financial crisis in 2007 and eight. but that's a different story. But uh, Peter Mazareas, who is the co-founder, um, he was at the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority, executive director there, just took over. I came in and said, hey, let's do all this. And as it turned out, uh, MIFA had a platform where they were not only responsible for student loans, private credit student loans in Massachusetts and using their tax exempt status to make it better for students and for families when they're borrowing. They also had a charter for savings. And Peter and a group of others, Mary Morris in Virginia and a few others across the country got together and said, let's like kind of really blow out this idea of prepaid college uh, plan. Let's make it a savings program. And they went and they lobbied the Congress and they're still at it today, Eric. There's always very more cool. work to be done. Yeah, it's very in cool. In fact, we met, we met in person. I think it might have been one of y'all's meetings down here in New Orleans. And we finally had a chance and had a lovely conversation uh, down in the French Quarter. Yeah, that's right. That was that was a great morning. I was really glad that we could get together. And again, there's there's plenty to talk about. And the College Savings Foundation has been at it now 20 years as well, trying to make it better. And And the reality is try to expand the utility yeah. of that program. It's a great program, but they've expanded it and made it even better. Man, so I am so grateful for you taking time and bringing your experience and knowledge to our listeners. And, and quite frankly, I've leaned on you a, a little bit. So here's the format for today. Um, we're going to talk about FAFSA. Uh, FAFSA is changing. It's changed. We just don't know how. Or we know a little bit how. We haven't seen it yet, right? So we want to talk about some updates on FAFSA. And then if we can, we can talk a little bit about 529s, how they work, some of the changes in the 529 space. But I imagine we'll touch on 529s during the conversation. But before we jump into FAFSA, there's um, uh, two things that I, I want to mention. Number one, I want to mention on the front end, just in case you know, listeners, you don't make it to the end. John has a blog that was posted on mycollegecorner.com. It's the latest blog, November 2nd. It says, parents know the college admissions timeline. This is probably hands down one of the most informative pieces I've read on as a parent on college planning. You essentially lay out a timeline from freshman year to senior year, what students and parents should be doing. Yeah, that, that's right, Eric. And I'm just thrilled that you found it so useful because this is the kind of content that we're trying to create. Because what you said here is really critical. The college planning process does not start senior year. It really starts freshman year um, for students. So we wanted to lay that out, give folks a chance. And 
I think, you know, a lot of when you, when you really look at where you are in your life stage and where your kids are, most of them are in pretty good shape, but they get scared by what they don't know. So we thought, right. you know what, let's just put it out there and say, here's what you can be doing in freshman year. You don't have to worry about filing the FAFSA form, right? You just yep. have to know kind of it exists. Join and clubs, so, take leadership roles. Yeah. I love how you lay that out. Yeah. Great. I'm glad you, I'm glad you like it. And uh, we, we love it. Mycollegecorner.com, by the way, it's all free information there. We put up some webinars on, on a whole bunch of topics. There are blog articles and there are some tools there. So um, I hope that your listeners will check it out and it, what, yeah. tell us what they like and what we might be able to improve. And we're going to link all of this up in, in the show notes. So you don't have to, you don't have to write it down if you don't want to, but um, check it out. Super helpful. The second thing I want to say is before we hop into the FAFSA, I crowdsourced some questions for this episode. Okay. Cool. College planning. Uh, I'm at that stage where a lot of my friends have kids. A lot of my Facebook friends have kids. And obviously as a financial planner, um, I'm running a group of financial planners where we get a lot of these questions. So I've crowdsourced some stuff. And I want to start off with it's like a pre-FAFSA question. I actually think this is probably maybe the, the most important takeaway of this entire podcast. I'm going to read the question exactly how it was posted to me. Okay. This is what they say. They say, how do I professionally say to my kid, I had to take out loans. So, so do you do So I'm sorry. So, so do you, I'm sorry. All your friends are rich or have parents who work at Tulane. <laughs> so here's the situation. I'm not paying for college. It's let me rephrase the question a little different way. How do we have this conversation with our kids about who's paying for college? Yeah, great. Uh, that's a great question. When you talk about stuff about money, this is the stuff about money that is could be one of the first times, you know, outside of having a kid having an allowance. But this is the first adult decision that they're really going to make. And, and you know, a lot of times, Eric, there's this debate in the house we had in our house, too. It's like, well, whose decision is this? Right. And and is it the kids' decision where they want to go to college? The parents and parents deciding, well, the reality, it's a little bit of like a real negotiation, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it's critical, really critical that financial fit is in that equation. Right. And if you go to your like high school counselors, they'll tell you straight out, hey, you know, for us, a happy student is one where the academic and social fit is really good. And then I'll say to them, well, yeah, what about like, can they afford it? <laughs> right. That's like a big deal. Um, yeah. So I, I think that 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 this is a really critical time. And, you know, talk about when can you start that conversation? If you can start it sooner, it's better because, you know, you went through this. I went through this twice with my daughters. By the time senior year comes around, there's so much emotion like into that equation. It's kind of crazy, right? And for for all the reasons we know, particularly the first one out of the house, it's not only where college you're going to go to, it's my baby's leaving the nest, right? And the kid yeah. has that sort of same kind of anxiety. So I'm going to I'm going to be leaving soon and you know. So there's all this stuff going on and it gets really emotional. So if you can start having that conversation in se- freshman sophomore year, say to your student, "Look, we want to have a great result here." But here's what it's going to be. You know, how well do you do in school? Like, how does it fit socially for you? And by the way, you know, it's expensive. So let's just talk about that. You know, and for some families, you don't have to be like crazy rich to like save. You know, what I always say, saving a dollar today is better than borrowing one tomorrow for college, yeah. right? So even, you know, freshman year, sophomore year, even junior year, whatever you can sort of pack away just a little bit will probably reduce the amount of debt that would be required if it's required on the back end. So you have that conversation. It's not easy, but the sooner you can get into that, uh, the more likely you are to actually be able to affect the decision when it comes to be the time. And I do find the decision on who's paying, student or parents, I tend to find it's a values-driven decision that people have this sense, like I came from, I was the born of immigrant parents. And if there's anything about immigrants, they value education and they will second and third and fourth mortgage their property for their kids to get a good education. I mean, you know, I'm like, man, like I'm going to pay for my kids college if I can, but like, you know, let's make sure it's reasonable. It's sort of make, makes sense. Uh, so it, it is, it is a bit of a values conversation. So engaging yeah. it early on is good. Yeah. And I think having eyes wide open is really important. You know, some people are railing against college debt. I'm actually, I, and it's not because I spent a good part of my career in the private credit student loan space. But I have now evidence, like data, which we like to talk about data and financial services, right? There's evidence 
that kids who graduate with, I'm going to say, an, a, a reasonable, smart amount of debt will do really well. And for this reason, uh, I, I was talking to friends of mine about this when we we're going through the process. And lo and behold, I, I said, look, for both of my daughters have student loans, right? And I co-signed them and I made sure that, you know, if they were going to be in trouble, I could help them. But they were fine. They didn't need the help. Some kids do. that. That's great. But one of my friends sent me a snapshot of his son's FICO score two years out of school, 740. And oh, wow. for, you know, for your listeners uh, who maybe don't, don't doesn't mean a lot to them, uh, that's a really solid credit yeah. score. Like 850 is the highest, and a lot of people have way under 700. And you know, so a 740 FICO score for somebody two years out, and and I don't, I'm not taking full credit or any credit for that, but it's like the kid had a loan, they did what they were supposed to do, you know, they they started paying their utility bills on time, and they had a great FICO score within a couple of years of being out of school. So they set themselves, the foundation for their financial future was set very solidly. So let me ask you this. You said a reasonable amount of student loan. Now, I've always used the rule of thumb, a reasonable amount is your first year's anticipated income, wherever you're going to, whatever you're going to go do, right? If you're going to be right. an engineer, maybe with 80, 85,000 of, of student loan debt, it's going to be good. If you're going to go be the executive director at a small nonprofit, then you probably don't want $250,000 of law school debt, right? Is that? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a very reasonable metric. I, I say the same thing, but I, I also, and this is another one of my, you know, saving a dollar today is better than borrowing tomorrow. The other one that I really will say as many times as I possibly can is that student loans should be the last resort, not the first option to pay for college. Uh, so there are lots of arrows in that quiver, and hopefully the loan arrow comes last. There's some savings a family might have. Uh, there's financial aid available. We're going to talk more about that in a minute third-party scholarships or other scholarships, and then sometimes payment plans. You know, uh, the reality is, and you saw it, I saw it when my, my daughters uh, went to school, I had more disposable income because they weren't around asking me for money or taking the car and putting, you know, or eating or whatever they were doing. But even if it's $25 a month or $50 a month, every school says at the beginning of the year, how do you want to pay for this? And by the way, here's this payment plan, right? So you can pay over 10 months or six months or whatever you want. And even if it's $1,000 or whatever it, whatever it happens to be where a family's comfortable, that's better than taking $1,000 more in loan and paying interest on that and all the rest of it. Yep. So there are a whole bunch of arrows in that quiver. And just think about it in those terms, like what is the package? What's the best way for me to use my current resources and what's going to come to actually pay the college bill when it's time. We talked about that specific issue, I think, in our second show that we did. So That's I'll right. list links to that as well about the quivers. But let's hop into the FAFSA. Yeah. You had mentioned something earlier about parents having a, a lot of money and being able to afford college. So first question I want to ask you is, is what is the FAFSA? Who should fill it out? And if you have money, should you even bother filling it out? Yeah, yeah, great. So uh, FAFSA, one of the things we try, we're going to post another article on mycollegecorner.com, maybe today or Monday, it's going to be like all the terms and acronyms you need to know, right? And so FAFSA is like at the top of the list. It's the free, really underlined free application for federal student aid, FAFSA, that's the acronym, free application for federal student aid. And what this does is allows the Department of Education to collect financial information uh, from the, both the parent and from the student. And we'll talk about dependent students there because there's like when you start on the branches, it gets kind of crazy. But let's just talk about dependent students. So they're going to be undergraduates um, and they need some some to file this form to be considered for federal financial aid. So the question then that you ask is, OK, well, what could they be eligible for and is it worth doing? Right. Um, so the um, eligibility criteria is run through an algorithm, right? A fancy word for an equation. And they take the parent's income, they take the student's income, savings from both of them, other assets. And at the very end of all this, they, they produce a, a number called the student aid index. And uh, we, we, the student aid index is new. That replaces the BFC, the expected family contribution. That's going away. That's good. That, that has gone away. That gone has away. gone away. That's gone away. So that, that's in the rearview mirror. Somebody like you already filled out a FAFSA in the past and got an EFC. You're going to see a whole new experience when you get on here. And by the way, the, the, the sort of the bottom line on all this is that this form had previously been available on October 1st. It is not yet available at the Department of Education's uh, site. 
uh, and in December, uh, it's going to come out. There's there, there's guidance that came out two days ago. And those of us who follow this, and I follow this way too closely. I got a big chuckle and try to make a little bit of fun about it. But they said it's going to be posted uh, before December 31st. Uh, so that was very helpful. That means, that means January 2nd? <laughs> well, no. They, well, so this is the whole thing, Eric. They, they said it's going to be before December 31st, 2023. So I thought, okay, so it's going to be this year. Uh, but previously they were talking about how it's going to be sometime in December. And like, that's just so vague, but, but the point of this, and this is really critical. And this is why I think we need to get focused on this is that form determines a student's eligibility for work study for Pell grants and other grants that this, the federal government provides on a need base. So those who have lower incomes, they're going to get more Pell grants really okay. critical for that population. Um, and also for federal student loans. Um, so the federal direct student loan program, in my estimation, is the best game in town for an undergraduate student, right? They're really favorable repayment terms. They're, they're doing a lot of stuff. We can spend the whole show just talking about that one day. But the point of all this is that it's critical for students to fill out this form. And at mycollegecorner.com, under the tools sections, we have what is called the, uh, the financial aid calculator, student aid index estimator. The yeah. Department of Education put out very good, strong guidance over the course of the last year about how they're going to do this calculation. And although it's not an official uh, link, it's I can't say like this is what your essay is 100% going to be. It's a really good estimator. We've had almost 20,000 people use that since it was up there on September 1st. So I really encourage people um, while you're waiting for this FAFSA form to officially be available sometime in December, you can go up, check out what your SAI would be. Um, for those who are going to do that, you'll need information from your 2020 tax return. Okay. Um, that's the one that drives all this. So two years ago, uh, the two year, they call it the prior prior year. It's one of the definitions we'll have in that article that we put up, but it's two years ago. So it's uh, very confusing, but you're applying for 2024, 25. So the next academic year. So if you take 2024, subtract two, you get to 2022, which is the tax year that all this um, information is. And by the way, once the government has their um, site open, there's going to be a direct retrieval tool. So the student's going to have to say, you know, my parent is going to also supply information, and then they're going to contact the parent to give them access in. That, that, okay, so you bring up a good point here. So who's responsible for completing the form? Is it the student or the parent? The student. The this student's is, responsible. Okay. Yeah, this is where this is. They're putting their big boy pants on now, Eric. It's like, okay, you know, this is your first real financial transaction. I mean, they apply to college, right? Still, I'm not applying for my daughter, right? My daughter applied. Same thing with financial aid. They're applying for themselves, so they have to take the lead. Um, I'm going to say you don't have to be a helicopter parent to be the one sitting right next to them when they're pushing all the buttons. It's like most of us do that, right? And it's a, it's kind of daunting for a high school senior who hasn't been through any of this before. To, now, all of a sudden, they're going to start dealing with the IRS data retrieval tool and all the rest of this. It's it's a it's a real yeah. push. So, I mean, if 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 the IRS is, if part of education is making them fill it out, then they should need my data. Why are they going to base my kid's need based off of if it's their their responsibility, they're going to base it off of, of, of my financials. So <laughs> I, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, obviously. Sure. So when they complete it, there's a point along the way where they're going to need to, obviously the, the student is going to need to involve the parent to right. get access to the, the tax the return information. Data. Yeah, right? That, that's right. That, that's right. And am I, under, am I understanding this correctly, that it is going to now be automatic? It's not going to be an option whether to tied directly to the IRS, it's going to be an automatic thing, right? That's correct. Yeah, that, that that's right. Um, it's going to be an automatic tie, which I think honestly is what's taken this big um, tie up and delay. The Getting that right with the IRS, you can imagine all the security and data. all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. Huge, it's a huge thing. So yeah, so that's it. But you know, as uh, your listeners are going, they ought to jot this down as well. You're going to go in there, you need um, something called your FSA ID. That's your federal student aid ID, which is basically your identifying number. The student needs one and the parent needs one, and they're separate, right? So on our blog, we talk about five things that you can do before this form becomes available. We just hit on the second one. One is go up on the calculator and you know check out what your SAI might be. The second one is go to studentaid.gov, that's studentaid.gov, 
and create an FSA ID for the student. So they need to do this. And then the parent needs to do it as well. And the sort of good news here is well, once you have an FSA ID, you can use that in years to come. It's used for all kinds of interactions with the Department of Education uh, down the line. We can talk about uh, all the rest of that um, another time, but uh, it's really critical. So you could do that right now so that when the form is available, you'll have that uh, hurdle will be jumped and you can sort of get through and, and start on the on the form. So I'll use that, my ID, I'll use it for all of my kids. It doesn't that's change. Right. That, so that's right. Like my, it's kind of like my, my social security, my EIN for student for loan, financial aid. Yeah. Yeah. Financial perfect, aid. yeah. Perfect way to think about it. Yeah. So, so kind of go back to the original question. So, so basically everyone should apply, even if you know, you're not going to qualify for any government aid, you should qualify. The, uh, you, uh, should you should file you the should, form. You should file the form. We tell uh, that's exactly right. And, and so there's sort of two reasons for that. Um, and you can get an idea um, on when you fill out the estimator. Uh, one other point about the estimator. Um, remember, this is not like the number that the government wants you to contribute for college. Right? That expected family contribution was like an indicator. It was almost it was not doing what the government expected it to do. When they first created that EFC thing, they just said, we want to let you know like what we think the relative range is. This student aid index is called an index for a reason. And the index can go from negative 1,500 all the way up to the cost of attendance. So if you have a wild, crazy amount of income and assets, you may, let's just say that the cost of attendance at a school is $50,000. Your student aid index might be 50,000. If you have very little or no assets, same thing for the student, the student's student aid index might be negative 1,500. And so that's kind of counterintuitive, you know, and we wrote about this on another article there on the blog, but it's kind of counterintuitive, but it is an index now. So they're not saying that, you know, because you're less than zero, we're going to give you more money than you might be entitled. What that range index allows them to do is more aptly identify students who are eligible for Pell Grants. And the big driver behind this FAFSA simplification is this Pell Grant uh, program and Pell Grants allow lots and lots of kids who don't come from means to go to school sometimes for free right mm -hmm. so this idea of like how much of a pell grant can you get is a is a really big deal um so this relative index is let's say i have a kid who has a zero sai and i have a student who's a negative 1500 sai that's an indicator to the college financial aid office that the negative 1500 student needs more aid they both need aid but if you're trying to like parse through these very scarce resources and you want the negative 1500 that's the kid that should get more aid. It's, again, so that brings up a really good point. When when I fill out the FAFSA, there's a couple things going on. One is if you complete it, the student's going to have access to government loans regardless. Or there's a there's an amount of loan that every student can access regardless of need. Correct? Exactly right. Exactly right. Okay. And it increases with every year. Like what per semester as a freshman, it's like. Four thousand or forty. Yeah, so fr freshman and sophomore years, the first and second year, fifty five hundred dollar total, and then there's it gets a little more confusing. There's subsidized and unsubsidized, but like just to get to the high level, fifty five hundred for freshmen and sophomores, sixty five hundred okay. for juniors, seventy five hundred for seniors. That's the maximum you can borrow under the federal government program, which That's comes right. out to somewhere like right under forty thousand total, which is somewhere right around the average first year income for someone coming out of college. Yeah, so I, I love that metric. Exactly right. We say okay. that if, if you're borrowing that and you're making that amount, you should be able to do that comfortably. So if you want to take advantage of any government loan, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of your net worth, you've got to complete the FAFSA. You, you've got to give the IRS. I mean, the IRS knows your your finances already. You can't hide it. Submit it. Okay? That's right. And then also from a government standpoint, Pell Grants and whatnot will be determined by the SIA. But then you said something else that colleges individual college aid financial um, offices are going to use a number as well to determine their aid that they give to students, correct? That's right. Yeah. And okay. there are, there's a, another group, um, scholarship providers and others who can get that SAI data and they use it. Some state programs are dependent on the FSA, on the SAI index as well. So yeah, fill, fill it out. I mean, particularly, you know, I did it with my daughter and, and she was you know, scared to hit that IRS button. And I didn't, first time I did it, I was like, all right, I'm holding my breath. Too. I was but, scared to die. My kid yeah. didn't, he didn't, he didn't yeah. care. I cared. I was yeah. terrified. 
Yeah, of course. I, well, you know, we're from the IRS and we're here to help you. You're like, I, that's yeah. not like resonating real well with me, but it worked, right? It worked really well. So yeah. hopefully uh, they have the kinks worked out of it in this next form. And I, I, I'm with you. Just file the okay. form and see what happens. Hello, loyal listeners. Hey, are you a local agent struggling to find markets for your client? Maybe you, maybe not. Look no further than Nation Brokerage Solutions. With over 200 carriers, their comprehensive options give you what you need for your customers' ever-changing needs. With NBS, as they say it in the cool world, you can confidently offer a wide range of options to better support your customers and grow your business, A.K. agency. Don't settle for less. Do more with NBS. For more information about Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, visit nbsbrokerage.com. Cast certified. So that brings me to the next question is we're filing this form um, as we plan as parents for our kid. Let's talk about how different assets impact our our SAI. Yes. You know, we're always, everyone's trying, John, you'd be, and I'm sure you've heard it, like you, you, people, will, people will come up with wild ideas in, in terms of how to avoid hoarding income or reporting assets in an effort to get more student money. I'm sitting here thinking like, wow, that is that is complicated and far-fetched. And some some of the ideas are not far-fetched, but it just seems a lot of it just seems some of some of these ideas are 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 interesting, things that you wouldn't normally do and you're trying to do for, you know, for a few, you know, college bucks. So what's your thoughts on some of like some of these ideas or, or ways to to and I don't yeah. want to go into any specifics no. of the different types of strategies, but no, and, and and I appreciate that. And you know, so my my sort of bottom line on all of this, and you said it before, is the IRS now has your financial information, and it's going to automatically upload into this form, right? And so the question is, you know, what can I do to game that system, right? And they're using your tax returns from two years prior, so that means once your student is a junior junior and senior, you're locked in. That's going to be your financial picture that the that the FAFSA form will use. And by the way, if it changes, and this is really critical for your, for your listeners, I'm glad you brought this up. If it changes dramatically, there's a loss of a job or some terrible medical situation, you can appeal all that and, and make that happen and figure out how to make it right. But you need to get on that really early in the process, right? So um, I think it's important and critical uh, that you're able to go through and determine early in the process. So you want to do all that. But like some of these schemes, somebody once told me, well, you know, it's much better if you're in state somewhere. So I'm going to buy my, so get the in-state tuition. I'm going to buy my kid a condo in that state. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, but if you're able to afford a condo in that state, why don't you just like, you know, just, just play it straight and see what, see what happens. Um, so I'm, I'm, or give up a guardianship to a poor grandparent. Yeah, right. Um, there, there are all those little games, and I, 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 I don't think um, I, I just I can't like recommend people do that or spend a lot of time thinking about it. It's just it's yeah. not very productive. I feel I feel like our tax returns tell a particular narrative about our finances. Then all of a sudden, if you're telling a different narrative, or you're, it's going to be really hard to tell a different one now because they're. I mean, if you file your taxes, you can pretty pretty much filed your fast other than the 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 formality of hitting go. Right. 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 Another question I get often is, and I mentioned we're going to talk about 529 plans. Are 529 assets considered differently than uh, investment accounts? So let's say, for example, someone has $100,000 in a taxable investment account, and then someone has $100,000 in a 529 plan. Right. And then let's say that owner, let's say say it's me. I own the 529 and I own the investment account. How are those assets counted? Are they counted differently? Yeah, they are. And, and you, obviously, if you've like I did with my kids, we had 529s for both the girls. Um, I had the benefit of tax deferral of all that income gain. Like I wasn't paying taxes on that account while they were little and it was growing and growing and growing. And as long as you use it for what's known technically as a qualified distribution, qualified educational expense, um, then you don't pay tax on it ever, right? And so that grows. So fundamentally, it's it's a really good savings vehicle. Uh, but to get to your point, and this is one of the places that has really improved quite a lot on this new FAFSA form. So the new FAFSA form will say um, what's the same, what your college savings are on a 529, 
will assume like 5.64% of that will assume to be available for your child's education, right? 5.64% of, of, of the of the 529 account. That's five, how they, okay. yeah. So, cause you know, there's this wild myth out there. And I think it's a wild myth that if I save too much for college, I'm going to be penalized big time in the financial aid process. And with the 529s, that's really not true. Um, it's 5.64%. Uh, the taxable accounts are a higher amount, so they actually assume you're going to take more out of that account than 5.64%. Uh, so again, there's an advantage. It seems backwards the- to me. It seems backwards to me because it seems like 100% of the 529 plan would be allocated towards college. Yeah, but the way they... The, so the, the I think the, the differential here is that um, they're assuming that only 5.64% because they don't want to penalize you in the in the 100%. So if I have, you know, in, in my example before $50,000 cost of attendance, I have 50,000 and they say, okay, use all that. And then you've sort of drained your account on the first year. They didn't want that penalty, that to, that to actually be a penalty against you for the financial aid. Um, so the other, there were two other really big improvements um, in the 529 treatment of 529s before. And when you filled out the FAFSA form uh, last time, if there was a grandparent 529 involved, the, what would happen is the grandparent would give that money to the student and it would be considered the student's income, not savings, but student income, and it would be taxed uh, from the financial, I say tax, I don't want, I shouldn't say that in this context. It would have been assumed that 20% of that would be used for financial aid. So that would have a pretty significant reduction in, in the amount of financial aid, right, that you're getting. Instead of saying, you know what, for 5.64% on $10,000, it's $564 is how much less financial aid you'd get. If it were the grandparent pushing it through to the student, that would have been $2,000 less aid. So that was a place where, okay, you know, you got to be really careful that, well, they took that restriction out, Eric. So now grandparent 529s count just like the other. It just give it, get it in there and use it uh, for a direct dollar for dollar. So that's great. And the second is that they used to ask, um, whether or not you had a 529 for a sibling, like your whole 529. Now it's just right for that student. So they're really trying, trying to focus on what's happening for that particular student. And they changed the formula so that the utilization of 529s is actually much more advantageous. They also changed the formula in a negative way. And I'll say this uh, because it's connected. I just talked about siblings. Um, and you, you're not going to appreciate this if you have a second uh, child in school while your first one's uh, still in college. But it used to be that your ESC would be divided by the number of kids in college, basically, right? So if you had two students, you had a 10,000 EFC, it was 5,000. That's not the way it is anymore. Uh, they call it the sibling loophole has been closed. And they're saying, you know what? We're playing it straight with a kid. So we're not going to worry about reducing your student aid index. And by the way, it's an index now, not a contribution number. So, you know, just relatively, yeah. you'll have to go to the school and see what this means. So back to 529 plans, um, grandparent-owned, parent-owned. Yep. They're looking at the student, what are they a beneficiary of? So it doesn't matter who owns it, are they the beneficiary of a 529 plan? And when a withdrawal is made, there's an election where, uh, the owner gets to say, is it made to the owner or to the student? Right. What's the correct way to do that? You know, um, it, or, the, the, or maybe directly to the uh, university or, or college, right? Yeah. So it, do, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I, I did it uh, myself personally directly to the school. So there would be a, a good trail there. If anybody came back to me and said, well, how do we know that you use that money for qualified educational expenses? Because I sent the money directly to the college and you know, it showed up on the bill, you know, minus amount from 529 and there's my documentation. So that's it why just makes it that. easy. Yeah, it makes it easy if you ever. Yeah. Audited. Yeah. If you're ever audited. Yeah. Yeah. How are, um, so we talked about 529 assets, taxable investment accounts. How are, how's property um, looked yeah. upon? Maybe like a property in terms of like real estate, like primary mm-hmm. home, and then some type of maybe se- secondary or rental property, and then also business asset. Yeah, uh, so this is another place where it's changed fundamentally and negatively for for a parent. Oh, no. So the the good news is your primary home is still your primary home, and it doesn't count, right? So you don't have to worry about valuing your home or any of that. A second home uh, could be an asset uh, or for this purpose. 
And we're just talking about the FAFSA form here, the federal form. There's another form out there uh, called the CSS profile where they really dig into this on a whole different level, but that's probably a that's conversation. For specific, that's specific colleges require that, not, not, the, not the majority, correct? That's right. About 300 or so schools require that. It's through the college board. So that's a separate form. But some of your listeners may have said, well, wait a minute, I thought I had to put some information in there. And they might have been filling out the profile uh, okay. rather than the FAFSA. So just kind of put a place saver there that there are two financial aid forms. Most students only have to file one, the federal form, uh, but some of the colleges require the, the second form. Uh, so that's one thing about the property. The, the second, and this is where the, the, the sort of negative part of this comes in, uh, they, they came back and said, well, look, if you have considerable um, assets, uh, we're going to value them differently. And it's basically family farms and small businesses. Right. So um, for those in the in the farm belt, uh, saying we need to understand the value of your farm, we need a valuation of your farm that's going to be included in one as an asset in your uh, financial aid calculation. Uh, Same thing for small business. There used to be a small business exemption uh, and it's it's been taken out, basically. So um, this valuation question becomes one. And so, you know, you were asking before, well, you know, what what might someone who's trying to game the system a little bit like where could they um you know where could they do that and you know this is clearly like how are they going to audit what the value of your business is and that and so again i'm not saying that this is a strategy people should use i'm just saying that this is one of those areas um where honesty is the best policy like you know let's say what it is and and move into it um and get through it uh, but I've already had this question come a number of times now. Well, you know, how are they going to know? Well, you know, there are relative ways to know. There, so you're saying you 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 have a pic. They have a picture of what your financial wherewithal is throughout. And so uh, this is an area, though, uh, particularly on the valuation of family farms and small businesses that's changed from the past. Yeah. Wow. Valuing business is such a. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. You have such wildly, the uh, you know diverse values of the same business so i guess that is the strategy is you can discount the, the value of your, your business I, I don't know i do i will say this from a planning standpoint uh if you have a kid who's preparing to go to college two years out don't sell your small business that year. <laughs> uh, yeah because well, that will uh, um, drive uh, your income. And, yeah, and therefore- yeah that, that's right. Hey, the last point we should make about this FAFSA form, it's just yeah. not for high school seniors, right? It's freshmen, sophomores, and juniors in college who are going to be returning for the next year. Uh, so they need to refile that form um, each year. So that that's really important consideration as well. It's a good question. When the student leads me to this question, when a student goes to fill it out again, do I, as a parent, get notified like, hey, your student is completing the the FAFSA needs you to yeah to... same thing it's going to be they're going to knock on your door and say okay it's time for you to um yeah. by the way um this is a really interesting point um so they they knock on your door and they say all right Eric you know you, it's time for you to put your financial information in you can say no right you can say no um and if you say no the student will be still be eligible for an unsubsidized student loan but no other financial aid, right? So that, um, I mean, maybe that is something where a parent might say, you know what, I just don't want to do it, but I don't want them to necessarily be penalized. So, um, you know, when they when they invite me, I'm going to say no. And then my student will be eligible at least for a federal student loan. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking that most parents are going to say yes, uh, because you're going to want to know if you're eligible for work study yeah. or for any of the rest of yeah. it. So, um, but you have the option. They, they've uh, kind of given you that opportunity. What if a student is working, files their own tax return? Parents are, you know, funding the student to some degree, but not claiming them as a dependent. Does that change how the FAFSA is filed? It, it, it is. Um, so, dependent students and independent students are treated differently in the process. Um, so if the student is independent, they can check that box and and use a whole different route to to be um, I was going to say graded, but to for the SAI calculation, it's a whole different calculation then based just solely on their income and their assets. So if a child is not a dependent on the parent's tax return, I mean obviously they need to be working. I mean, right. if they're not working, the question the, the potential is well, how are they being are they being funded right? But if the child right. has a has a legitimate job and is is being paid and Parent no longer filing their own tax return, they could file in their own accord. They could, um, but the you know 
when I was a banker, I, I used to love it. I go to client meetings and they'd play stump the banker. So you just kind of playing stump the banker. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a, a, a stump the banker question uh, from this side of the microphone, and that is which parent actually has to file, right? So you know a lot of situations where divorced, separated parents, you know that sort of thing. Like who filed? Big big question. Um, and the answer to that is also different from the way it was on the last form. On this form, it's the parent that has provided the most financial support in the last 12 months. That's the parent who's supposed to file. So if my daughter's living with me, but my wife is the one who's supplying her financial support, doesn't matter that she's living with me. That's the way it used to be. Like, who are they living with? That's where, That's not it. Now it's who gives them more financial support in the last 12 months. So if my wife is out there making a ton of money and I'm holding, uh, you know, I'm, I have my house and and my daughter's living with me, but she's getting support from her mother. It's not my financial return. It's her mom's financial return. Even if you will... claim her as a dependent. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So um, <laughs> are FASAs audited? Like, they it can seems be. like yeah oh yeah, yeah. They, they, they they can be yep the department yeah. uh they, and actually they did fairly substantial reviews on these at one point um you know who who knows what their capacity is but yeah no they they can definitely they can definitely audit it they can definitely so what, audit one, it. Of the, one of the best strategies for college planning let me, let me see if i'm if i'm hearing this right it's start saving Simple i agree yep. don't don't try to manipulate the system and try to move income. You can do all that, but at the end, some of those schemes they they fall through and they they might cost more in the end. It's just, it's just be diligent and save. Um, read read John's timeline so you know what your kids should be doing. Uh, we've been talking about needs based financial aid. Great, yeah, needs based, needs -based financial. But there's also merit based. Correct. Right. Right. Which is not captured in the FAFSA. Not captured by kind of it's the same way if I'm hiring someone I'm I'm not just going to hire them based off of you know what degree that they have I want to know do they do they meet the culture of my workplace do they right. have you know do they show leadership qualities uh, what extracurricular are they involved in right That's and that that is a good way to plan for colleges have conversations with your child about becoming a well-rounded individual when they're in the years that it's going to count towards aid. Right. And in that article, you know, we talk about, you know, freshman year, look, get your feet planted, understand what it means to be a good high school student, study a lot, like do the best you can. Right. But also, as you're saying, join a club, join a sports team, do something in your community, you know, just get involved, show because what the colleges want is what you just said. And it's kind of their workplace, right? The college, the, the students are there. They want a really well-rounded student body. They want athletes. They want, you know, theater people. They want good citizens. All, and so they'll give merit money for that. And sometimes, and I'll, I'll tell you honestly, I, I, I might've mentioned this before. I, I love my daughter, but she's no Rhodes Scholar, but she got the same percentage of merit-based aid. We didn't file an application, nothing from three different schools. So we lived in the Northeast at the time we lived outside of Boston. She got money from a school in San Antonio, one in the cornfields of Indianapolis and one in the desert in California, all about the same percentage of the tuition, because I believe they wanted geographical diversity in their student population. Right? So, so you're coming from Louisiana and guess what? Maybe this kid wants to go to a school in Maine or someplace where a lot of kids from Louisiana don't show up, right? That school in Maine might say, oh, you know, Eric's got his son. Well, I, I, we like this kid. We're going to give him some money just for coming from Louisiana, right? It's And it's it, you don't know. And and that's you have no idea what the school wants. And you can think of it. And we, we didn't we should have mentioned this in the beginning. I think it's really critical that families realize that they are consumers. They're consumers of education, right? But and it, there's a financial transaction that goes on between the consumer of the education and the institution. And the institution, a lot of us like to say, oh, you know, they're going to go there and they're going to be very maternalistic and they're going to take care of little Sally and it's all going to be, you know what? They want net tuition revenue. That's what colleges run by, net tuition revenue. So their game is to make sure they attract the best class they can and spend the very least amount of money they can to get that class in the seats, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the equation between the consumer 
and the seller of the of the service. So you're telling me colleges are in it for money. Colleges are in it for money. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Man, oh my goodness. Can you imagine? Let's that? um let's 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 spend a couple of minutes on 529 plans and wrap up there. There's there's been some some big changes with 529 plans. Uh, with uh, I believe it's out of the Secure Act, the Secure 2.0 Act. Because um, the big right. question was, and I was posed this question recently. I got all this money to buy twenty nine plan. My kid has scholarships. What am I supposed to do with this balance of money in my five twenty nine plan? That was a big change. Talk to us a little bit about what happens there. This is pretty yeah, cool. and this is one of the places where um, the the Congress gets a ton of credit. And honestly, the um, organizations like the one where, where we were in in uh, New Orleans, the uh the they they've worked really hard to make these programs more useful to combat that thing of i don't want to save because i don't know my kid's going to go to school so now um and this is a course has been rolled out over about the last four or five or six years um you can use money in your 529 account for private elementary public school mm -hmm. private schools um elementary schools high schools so that's like a big deal um you can also use it for up to ten thousand dollars for student loans Right. So we talked earlier about, well, gee, it's a good idea to go and get some loans. Well, if you have some money in there, you can use up to $10,000 of that to pay down the student loan. That's really great. Now, here's the key. You can use it for apprenticeships on the Department of Education site. There's a whole list of different apprenticeships so that now if a kid wants to be a welder or they want to do something else and they're not going to college, and they want to get an apprenticeship, they can use that money for an apprenticeship. And then the, the sort of last like really big deal that you're alluding to is that they're now going to be able to roll these over um, into Roth IRAs, right? So, you know, this is like really critical thing. It's like at the end of the day, uh, and there's a, there's a, by the way, there's a lot of like detail around that, but the end of the day, it removes that whole argument of like what would happen because previously what would happen is that there's a bunch of money left in the account. Nobody else is going to school. And the parent had a couple options. One, they could redesignate the beneficiary, maybe to a grandchild or to themselves or to like whatever, or they could take the money out and there was a penalty that they could yep. pay to get that out, right? Um, so they had some options, but they were limited. Now you got these rollover opportunities. You can use it for student now, loans. Now and all the, the rollover rest, right? is to the beneficiary, not to the parent. Right. Um, you know what, Eric? I, I am not I think it's the, sure I think it's that. to the beneficiary. You can use it for the child, not the yeah. owner. I yeah, believe I, so. I, I, there, I, there's I, a limit on that. There's a top limit on how much of it you can roll over. There is a limit and there's a lot yeah. of like messy detail involved there. And so I'll get sharper on that point. I, I just don't, I don't want to guess wrong here. Um, so uh, I think you're right because about this that. Because this is all, this is all new stuff. Yeah. It's, it's all, this, it's all this new. Is all, this is all, yeah. It's all brand new stuff. Yep. Man, what what are we missing, John? What's the what's the silver bullet? What's come on, man? Make it. I, I hey. my daughter yeah. wants to go. She's a dancer, and she all the colleges she's she's electing are in the Northeast. So I'm hoping they went geographic diversity. Yeah, yeah. Um, several are in New York. So she'll be knocking at your door. Yeah, um, excellent. <laughs> what, what, and so, I don't want to pay eighty thousand dollars for NYU, John. Yeah, well, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Stern MBA graduate, so I, I understand okay. that. And if you come to New York, make sure you knock on my door because I'd love to have dinner with you and meet your daughter. So here's the silver bullet, and you said it at the beginning, and we talk about it all the time, is just plan. Like, And it doesn't have to be like a 50-page strategic plan to get your kid into like ballet school. It just has to be, okay, here's how much money we saved. And I, and I say, this is the place where it's time to be realistic. Like, don't be optimistic about how much you think you're going to save or like what the market's going to do in the next five years to make you like crazy rich and like, it, be realistic. Like, what do you have? Know that, that's really important. And then start that conversation early with your son or daughter about, you know, where do you think you want to go? And and by the way, you know, it's hard for parents. Like, here's how much money we have. Like, we've, we've got this and, you know, this is going to go. And so if you want to go to a school that's more expensive, we're going to be more dependent on either scholarships or need-based aid or something. And and the the I'm going to say the whatever what's the opposite of the silver bullet? Like the thing you don't want to do, kryptonite. <laughs> yeah, kryptonite. You, you, you don't want to blow up your retirement to get your kid to college, right? I think say that again. Say that yeah, again. Do me. not blow up your retirement to send your son or daughter to college. It's bad bad news to do that. Don't do it. Thank you. I have never heard, I've been in this industry for 23 years and I have yet to hear of a retirement loan. 
there's no retirement loan. No, no retirement. No, uh, once they, student loans. Okay. Uh, th- th- thank you. Yes, we are on the same hymnal on that one, Eric. No question. Awesome, John. This is fantastic, man. I appreciate you. You are a, you are a value add to me personally. You're a value add to my listeners, and I'm sure we'll do this again sometime in the next uh, six months. Love to do it, Eric. Good luck. Uh, great luck. Uh, good news uh, for for everyone with that uh, fastle form. It's going to be out sometime in yeah. December. So you know, keep keep your eyes open. We'll see. We'll see. And just for record, we are we are recording on November seventeenth right now. Just just kind of to, to put it in context. So yeah, perfect. Who knows? Who knows? All right, John. Take care. You as well. Information presented and discussed on the Stuff About Money podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute direct financial advice. Be sure to consult with a qualified financial advisor prior to implementing any strategies discussed. Eric Garcia and Xavier Angel's branch office is located in New Orleans, Louisiana. The branch phone number is 504-218-5479. Securities offered through Osaic Wealth Incorporated. Member FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through New Century Financial Group, LLC. A registered investment advisor. Osaic Wealth is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of Osaic Wealth. Hey, agents, listen to this. Listen to this. What are we terrible at? Think of it. Think of it. Really? We're, we're terrible at training, right? We're not very good at hiring. We're not very good, terrible at firing, actually. Uh, terrible at creating process and some workflows. Terrible at technology and implementing that technology and even knowing what type of technology we want. And the list goes on and on. Now, listen, I'm an agency owner. And I, you know how it is. To, to fix a problem, the first thing you got to do is you got to admit you have a problem. Here's what you do. Go to virtualintel.com. Check out what we do because we do all those bad things that you can't do. Really? And you may do one or two of them well. Good for you if you can do them all. Just want you to know you're in the minority. But if you can't do any of them good or you don't even want to do them anymore because it just takes too much mental power, then good for you for realizing that and give us a call. I'm telling you, virtual intelligence, that's what we do. And where we specialize in high quality VEs, not virtual assistants. Look it up. Go to ChatGPT. Put in what's the difference between a virtual assistant and a virtual employee. Enough said. I don't have enough time to go on and on about all the differences on this 60 second commercial, but you've got time to search it and look at it. That's what we do. We deliver high quality VEs. We mix the technology with it. We train them on the technology, give them and the technology to you and you're off to the races. I'm not joking with you. You can call my agency at any time, ask for Lordland. And we do ask her, say, how fast are you able to do quotes? I've actually got a couple videos of it. That's right. We can do five to 10 carriers in one quote in three to seven minutes. So you give me an auto quote, I can do five to 10 carriers in three to seven minutes. How are we doing it? We're doing it through the technology of virtual intelligence. Give us a call, check us out. You can ask for me personally, I'll do the demo for you. Who are they? Cast certified.